Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. Good morning, Belinda Fetke. How are you going? I'm very well. Thank you, Marty. How are you? <laughs> yeah, really well. It's um, so lovely to chat and um, it's a strange world we live in that, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a Seventh Adventist house and till I was about 10 and uh, lived everything you've been talking about and then got involved in the whole low carb down under scene and got into low carb nutrition to help money and then you guys come along and um, <laughs> you've had quite a story and then you completely dove down the rabbit hole of um, the background of our nutritional guidelines and how they're influenced by uh, religious interests and a bunch of other interests yeah. and uh, the two worlds collided and, and blew my mind and you started talking about all the things that my parents were nutting out and trying to grapple with when I was just you know about 10 and um yeah so that's completely fascinating it brought back a whole lot of memories and uh, it's just really interesting to see how that all comes together and um so I wanted to get you on today just to give people a deeper understanding of potentially what has influenced our nutritional guidelines um that may not be purely related to health and uh, optimal nutrition and just that world, that rabbit hole to try and help us grapple with what optimal nutrition might look like. Yeah, so looking forward to chatting today. Thank you. Yeah, well, yeah. So a, bit, suppose... a bit like you, I had, when I started looking into this, I had no idea about any <laughs> religious concepts. So um, I certainly didn't expect to find that. And I certainly didn't expect to be researching it. So it has been yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I suppose you've said a few times you're um you're not anti-religious, and I think you're right. somewhat from a religious family, and um mm -hmm. and I grew up in a very religious environment, but um yeah, it's just interesting to understand how beliefs um, rather than nutrition have influenced how we eat today and the messaging around food. So yeah, um mm -hmm. to introduce, how did you fall into this rabbit hole? What uh, what's your backstory? It's quite fascinating. It is an interesting backstory and it began with Gary's own health. And I think a lot of people who've come to this low carb space have their own health journey or they've seen somebody very close or a patient who has encouraged them to rethink mm. what they've been taught with their medical education or their dietetic education. And ours certainly came from Gary's own health mm. journey. He was diagnosed with a very aggressive pituitary tumour in the year 2000. And after losing his mum when he was only 16, he just wow. did not want to not be here for his kids. Yeah, wow. So he had um, a craniotomy where they actually took his skull off and pulled his entire face down, had to learn to walk. It was a horrific wow. surgery. He had re stereotactic radiotherapy for three months in Sydney, and then he was on chemotherapy on and off for the next 11 and a half years. He had more surgery in 2004, because despite modern medicine, they could not control it. And I'm not saying those things weren't really important because Gary's mm. tumour was found at a very advanced stage. So all of that modern medicine was essential for him mm. to be here today. But we were never told about nutrition. Mm. And in looking back, 
that's probably the biggest missing piece that could have potentially and did end up putting his cancer into remission. Mm. So he has still got cancer, but he's mm. been off chemotherapy purely by using diet for seven over seven years now. And so and he's off to play golf right health. now. He popped on the call before <laughs> and he was bright and shiny and happy and looking radiant and just such a lovely exactly. guy. So. Off to golf. And so he <laughs> improved his own health. He reversed his type 2 di- or pre-diabetes, his blood pressure, and all the medications that they kept putting him on to band-aid the side effects of other medications. Mm. Like he's come off 10 medications. And um, to look at his health, just get better and better, and then he started to think when he worked it out in 2011, 2012, well, how can I take this into my orthopaedic practice mm. and help my patients who are literally, it's a tsunami of type 2 diabetes mm. complications and metabolic mm. disease. Mm. So he started to understand very quickly that recommending patients reduce sugar. And mm. if you think about it, he can tell people to stop smoking, even mm. though he's not qualified in that space. He can tell people to exercise, all of those things. For some reason, telling people to reduce sugar hit a nerve with the Dietitians mm. Association of Australia. And he was reported to the medical board in 2014. In, he was reported three times. And the mm. second one was because he was inappropriately reversing type 2 diabetes, or he claimed to. So they investigated him for two and a half years, a star chamber investigation. Like they just mm. did not stop coming at him. He virtually produced a thesis on the metabolic model of modern disease and and reached out to so many people who had done specific research in this space. And as you say, it's looking at the biochemistry. If you look Mm. simply at the science and you take out the emotion, Mm. which I know is a big thing we've discussed on and off, take out the emotion, take out the beliefs, take out all those other things and you simply look at the biochemistry, then low carb makes sense. And... And telling people to reduce sugar makes sense when they're mm. presenting with the complications of type 2 diabetes. They're requiring mm. debridement and amputation of their feet. Mm. Like mm. anything you can do to help people in that space has to be good. So yeah. that's where my research chop- started. Gary's <laughs> literally chopping off people's feet because of diabetes complications and yeah. saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't be eating so much sugar in your diet and it would help manage your type 1 or the type 2 diabetes i suppose with money we've found the same thing as is reducing carbohydrate um i mean not that all carbohydrates are bad and it it got more complex as we dug down the rabbit hole of looking at Mm. nutrient density is the the primary issue but i remember when we were trying to have kids and going she was pregnant we'd go up to the hospital and let's say you have to get your hba1c down lower and otherwise it's going to be complications and we go how and go, i don't know you just have to do it they just couldn't give you yeah. useful nutritional advice that would help mm-hmm. you achieve better goals and it's like what and, and then once we dug into it and life changed the quality of life changed and you can't unsee that you can't not want to share that i suppose so yeah absolutely gary says the same thing once you see the health benefits you can't unsee them yeah so when the medical board came out in 2016 after two and a half years and determined that he was silenced and his he was it it was lifelong and non-appellable under the courts of law for him to be able to ever talk about science of nutrition ever again and he just chose to disrespect that because he said, I'm not going to abide Crazy. by a law that will cause harm to my patients. But yeah. we had to fight 
and it took another two years before it eventually was overturned. And the only way we could do it was through the process. Mm. The process had to be flawed, not the actual determination. Mm. So it was the crazy system, four and a half years. My husband was subjected at similar time frame to Prof Tim Noakes in South yep. Africa. They mm. went through a very similar thing, but um, Tim's was very public and Gary's was mm. all behind closed doors. But you just think, this is ridiculous. And so the more and more I looked into it, the, the main thing I started researching, because I when they came after my husband, I can tell you, mm. the mama bear came out and was like, <laughs> have you seen what my husband's dealt with? Have you seen what his patient, like how he feels when he comes home after amputating someone, disfiguring someone for life? This is ridiculous. So I watched Gary, who joined um, Rod Taylor with Low Carb in 2013, Low Carb Down Under. I watched these guys talking the science. I mean, nobody's listening. Well, the people are listening, but the people mm. who are running the guidelines aren't listening. So there has to be more to this. Mm. So I and Gary just went, oh, yeah, you do whatever you want. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so, so the expert witness in the med APRA mm. medical board, actually pronounced APRA, I think, I just, mm. APRA, that it deserves that <laughs> highfalutin sounding word. So APRA. Um, when I looked at the expert witness that was brought in to determine if an orthopedic surgeon could talk about sugar or not, I thought he must work for the sugar industry. Mm. And I was pretty good at looking up a few things on mm. social media at the time, so I, or on the internet, and I thought, mm. I'm going to have a look and search. And I was totally surprised to find he was actually working for Sanitarium, mm. Sanitarium Health Food Company. Mm. Uh, oh, maybe it's not the sugar industry, maybe it's the cereal industry coming after Gary, mm. which would also make a lot of sense. Mm. And when, he, when I told the medical board, we submitted documents showing mm. that he worked for them, they wrote back and said, we don't believe you. We believe wow. Mark Walquist. And I was like, how can you not believe me? I've just submitted these things. So that began the don't deep rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Mama Bear kept going. You've been, married, yeah. you've been with Gary for 40 years now. 40 years. It's just a, a wonderful love story of you standing up and trying to defend his honour mm. for you know, what, what you've been through. Yeah. If the medical board had just picked someone local, a dietitian or a doctor or someone, I probably wouldn't have gone anywhere near this. I would never have met you. I would, we still would be in the backwaters here in Tassie going, why is no one listening? Um, you know, it's, it's incredible. It, it was their mistake in, in, in inviting this guy or having this man as the expert witness and then not believing us mm. and continuing to listen to him. And mm. so I just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and came across the International Life Sciences Institute, Ilzi, mm. his wife works for them. Mm. So then that sent me down the Coca-Cola path and then mm. I looked at lifestyle medicine because he was the patron for lifestyle medicine at the time. And so all of these things, I started to realise there was a symbiotic relationship happening mm. between the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church who totally mm. own, wholly own sanitarium and the food industry and vested mm. interests. And, this, and this, when these groups come together, they are very powerful allies. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's mind-blowing to understand, like, the <clears throat> religious belief system plus the ethical belief system plus the financial food mm. industry. When they all come together in an alliance, it's incredibly powerful yes. in not just controlling the dietary guidelines and influencing that and not being able to change it, but also the messaging and the greenwashing the of messaging. our <laughs> food system. And it's very subtle but very powerful. And, like, 
it's just amazing how much you've dug up about how the origins of the SDA church and really nutritional science in inverted commas and uh, the SDA movement started at the same time. They're very intertwined and uh, have are basically endemic throughout our current understanding of our beliefs about nutrition, which, like you said, are not often based on you know, the biochemical reactions in our body or nutrient density or, or anything related to actual health. It, it comes back to belief. So, Well, who would fund nutrition science? <laughs> the yeah. Harvard School of Public Health was literally bankrolled by the food industry back in the 1940s. Yeah. And so you look at this influence, you think, well, of course, because they want to prove that their products are good, you know, and then you've got mm. the 1970s where saturated fat was demonised. Mm. It, it's all been working together. Mm. I think this, it, what's important to understand is the religious, the ethical beliefs mm. and the vested interests all mm. have the same outcome. They want to promote mm. a plant-based diet, yep. but they want it not to be a wholesome plant-based diet. Yeah. It, it's it's about, because um, if you understand that the Seventh-day Adventist Church own, I think, 20, 23 food industries worldwide, mm. they're producing food, which Ellen G. White, their founder, stated when she came to Australia to set up mm. Sanitarium. Mm. The health food business is to supply the people mm. with food, which will take the place of flesh meat, milk mm. and butter. Mm. And so this is their mission. And they haven't stopped. They mm. now produce. I think 40 different, 140 different food products mm. and they've gone into not only the soy milks and the almond milks and all those things because now they're mm. really getting to that. It's not just wheat bix and up and go. Mm. Mm. But they also own a brand called the Alternative Meat Company. Mm. And this Alternative Meat Company is sort of hidden a bit below because they've got their sanitarium branding and they've got their Life Health Food branding. Life Health Foods isn't as easy to connect the dots to sanitarium but it is mm. under their umbrella. And then yeah. they go another layer down by having this alternative meat company. And when you go to their website, it is it is animal rights activism on their website. It's not the health mm. and well-being thing on sanitarium. And they are talking about the harms of cattle, you know, what they're doing to the environment and mm. we need to make alternative meat. Well, this is a really, you know, where did health food, where did our ideas of health food come from? And it yeah. have come from the Seventh-day Adventist church all the way back in the 1800s when John Harvey Kellogg was a devout Adventist and he created the very first health foods, yeah. commercial health foods. Based on the writings of Ellen G. White and her belief system around yes. the impacts of meat on, on sexual function to try and stop vice and self She was given those messages from God that yeah. meat caused physical, spiritual and moral degeneration and the moral part was definitely mm. masturbation, which was considered... A heinous sin at that time mm. and, and and by a lot of temperance health reformers mm. there were others that also thought that same thing in the 1800s but John Harvey Kellogg was only 12 years old mm. when he first started typesetting her sermons and her yeah. books and this book a solemn appeal to mothers was purely about helping mothers deter their children from masturbating and yeah. she said do and, not and put meat when on the plate up with that belief to unbelieve that and to not mm -hmm. see it in that paradigm and and that influence on nutritional science has just yes. been phenomenal and also the the longevity thing i was looking back into you know, ellen white taught that after the flood and noah people were permitted to eat 
animal flesh and that but it would shorten their sinful life shorten their lifespan <laughs> from four down to 400 years and i just can't see uh, the biggest messaging i see around anti-meat is that it'll shorten your lifespan and even the smartest people in nutrition research yes. say oh yeah protein's good protein leverage is amazing it'll help you reach an optimal body composition but it'll also shorten your life and it's like whoa 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 everything <laughs> in metabolic science comes back to not being over fat everything in metabolism comes back to having good blood sugars a good body composition waist to height um, body fat percentage but then it'll shorten your life where where did that come from there's no nutrition science there's no uh, there's no human data that validates that but it's just a endemic belief system in all of nutrition that you know protein's good but it'll also shorten your life it's just mind-blowing and that, that's all it seems to stem back to is just this belief system that's come through the dean of the college of medical evangelists which was what the university the loma linda university was called in mm. the u.s which is wholly owned by the church so the College of Medical Evangelists dean told, it's on record as telling, um, oh, sorry, I can't forget, remember the name of the guy who said it, but he said that he was told that it would take a few generations of eating, uh, and they call it vegetarian diet, mm. and it sounds much more palatable, but it's total vegetarian if you look at the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs because it's the Garden mm. of Eden diet. It's fruits, grains, mm. nuts and seeds, mm. no animal products at all. And he said... Ellen G. White taught that it would take a few generations of people eating just a vegan diet and then longevity would start to come back mm. and she mm. hoped it would come back to the 400, 800 years of longevity. And it's fascinating that it, this concept of an ancestral diet and evolution does not exist mm. to the Seventh-day Adventist church because science is the Bible. Mm. And... Mm. So when you have such an incredible purpose and belief, as you say, mm. that this is this is what was said, Ellen G. White told us as the prophetess, the founder of our church, all these things, we've got to look to the Bible, we've got to look to the Bible. And so if they believe that Adam and Eve were given a vegan diet in the mm. Garden of Eden and it wasn't until they sinned that they were eating meat and shortening mm. lives from there, then that's a very powerful messaging and this idea that, before translation, before you can be mm. saved and go back to heaven, you have to have given up flesh mate. So mm. they don't make it a, a condition of joining the church. Mm. And they certainly don't push it really hard at the beginning. But their idea is, as you work, and certainly for the um, health professionals that are teaching mm. this medical evangelism, they want to get people to give up flesh meat, milk, butter and eggs and, and a classic example is the Adventist, or sorry, Sanitarium's CHIP program. Mm. It's the Complete Health Improvement Program. Originally, the Coronary Health Improvement Program developed by Hans Deal at Loma Linda University. And this program, even though Sanitarium says, you know, it's not a mandate for vegan or vegetarian diets, when you look at the facilitator's guide, it mm. has meat, eggs and dairy as the top of the list of the worst health outcomes. Mm. They're the furthest along to that red sign. And someone did say to me that they were concerned that you know, the results weren't that great on the CHIP program and you don't need to worry about it. But I can assure you they have got 35 years of research behind this CHIP program. They can't afford to let it go because that's yeah. their leverage. 
and whether they rename it under the lift project or LEO wellness or whatever vitality mm. works whatever sanitarium wants to rename it under these programs the chip program is there and that is the basis of their nutrition education yeah. vitality works works for new south wales government they're mm. employed this is a sanitarium mm. is employed by the new south wales government to provide workplace wellness based on the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist mm. Church. So unpack what medical evangelism means and, and hastening the second coming of Christ. That, that, that's fascinating from a belief and motivational perspective of, you know, yeah, well, Ellen, what's think, the end goal? Yeah, I think Ellen worked out very early on, Ellen and her husband James, that by, teach, by taking the gospel through medicine, they truly believe that Jesus wasn't a carpenter and healed people via miracles. They believe he was the great physician. Mm. He healed people. And in healing people, taking that message, he was able to get an entering wedge to their hearts to then mm. lead them to the gospel. And mm. so they, Ellen G. White was told that the Seventh-day Adventist church were the remnant church and they were commissioned by God to tell the gospel message and get people to believe and to be converted and go back to heaven. So it's not a hundred percent legalistic religion, but it's mm. it's getting there. They mm. believe in faith, but mm. also obedience. Mm. And so this obedience is medical evangelism, and they mm. don't care what level. So there's 21 million or so people who are mm. part of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and they have a total. Um, there's it's the total movement. I think there's a, a, a process going on at the moment. Every single person within the church is to be a medical evangelist at whatever mm. level they can be. Mm. And whether that's cooking schools for your local community, running the CHIP program, whether it's in church, community, wellness, workplace wellness, or in hospitals. And they're taking these, a whole lot of different programs. There's the New Start program, there's CHIP, there's Vitality Works, there's... Um, Oh, what's the other one called? Creation Health. And so mm. you look at all these different programs and projects that are running all around the world. I believe lifestyle medicine is the latest one in that mm. space. But this idea that you join medical and gospel work together, it's far more powerful. Mm. They go, they've gone into 235 recognised United Nations countries. Mm. And the way they've been able to do a lot of that is either through education or through medical assistance. And they've, they write, they're they really, really proud. So it's not like I've just made these things up. I've just found over and over again mm. the acknowledgement that they have used these tools to get into countries and into religions that they would mm. never have been able to access mm. except that they've gone in offering medical help mm. or gone mm. in offering to educate. We'll provide a school, we'll provide education, all of these things. Mm. It's very, very clever marketing mm. and then yeah, and, on top of those they add the yeah. they add the food industries so then we'll help supply your food and we'll train your nurses and we'll you know it's it's a package uh, and it is beyond what most other religions are able to yeah create in this point in time and then they believe that they can hasten the second coming of christ by observing yes. the sabbath and not eating meat no, so it, you know if you can get more people converted and more people to observe their health doctrine, then they can, you know, the, the whole 
SDA Church from William Miller to 1844, Great Disappointment, to Mm -hmm. now they're looking forward to the second coming that didn't happen in 1844. They want want to bring that forward. That's like the ultimate momentum of the church. So it's a mission. It's a massive, heartfelt, deep-seated mission that is, is hard to change with any other contradictory information so yeah yeah they're an apocalyptic church so they are praying for the end of the world this is their belief yeah and looking yeah um so how let's talk about the dietary guidelines and the origin of the dietary guidelines and and where that started and how that's potentially influenced how we currently view nutritional science okay so Again, you go back to the 1800s and you've got the church paying for John Harvey Kellogg to to do medicine. So they opened the Battle Creek Sanitarium is the Health Reform, Western Health Reform Mm -hmm. Institute in the 19, sorry, in the 1870s. And in 1876, John Harvey Kellogg came in as the medical superintendent and he developed a medical program within that group and then he started training nurses and by the late 1800s, certainly training the beginning of dietetics. Mm. He split from the church in 1910, 1911, but he still was grounded in their original beliefs. And I mm. have, from what I've read, he was still very, very fond of LNG White right mm. through to the end of his life. He took over their um, Good Health magazines and all the productions. So he was instrumental in a lot of medical education worldwide. A lot. He wrote textbooks, many, many textbooks. He set up this dietetic training and under him and he, he and his wife from the Battle Creek Sanitarium, a, a woman called Lena Cooper, Lena Francis mm-hmm. Cooper, became the founder or co-founder of the American Dietetic Association with the belief that fruits, nuts and seeds are the God-appointed mm-hmm. diet for man. So I'm not sure if she was a Seventh-day Adventist, but her brothers certainly were. And she was very involved in that whole community. She she was working at Battle Creek Sanitarium. So she wrote the dietetics textbooks for, I think, 30 or 40 years, hugely involved in that whole beginning. And then you've got Kellogg's had the mm. very, very first, um, they employed the very first dietitian in the 1930s, and she became a a consultant to the government for the Second World War mm. on rations. So mm. everyone says, oh, Ansel Keys was the the um, instigator, but it was also a lot to do with Kellogg's as well. So those food rationings, it was a combination of both of them. And so, again, while um, William Keith, who ended up owning Kellogg's completely, he stepped away from John Harvey after they'd invented and done things. He wanted to add sugar to his product. Mm still with that same belief that fruit, nuts and seeds are the God-appointed diet for man, mm. taking this messaging further and further. In, the, in 1948, a guy called Mervyn Harding mm. was at the College of Medical Evangelists. He went to do his doctoral dissertation at Harvard University with Fred Stair, which I said was bankrolled by the food industry. So you can imagine here's this guy who's needing to provide information to say the food industry, you know, we need to, we need to create foods. Mm. And then you've got Mervyn Harding coming across going, we need to demonise saturated fat and meat because mm. plants are the thing. It was we need to like prove it's magic. the right way. Prove, not disprove divine inspiration, yes. So 
their research started being published in 1954 by certainly they were involved um, the College of Medical Evangelists, which became Loma Linda, were involved in the Senate Commission from McGovern in 1977. Nathan Pritikin was an adjunct professor at Loma Linda University. Mm. And he was so close to George McGovern that George McGovern gave his eulogy. And mm. again, his program was low fat, um, mm. anti-meat. Hans Dill, who devised this CHIP program, worked for Nathan Pritikin mm. at the Longevity Center. And so mm. it all just starts to like meld together. Um, Incredibly the interrelated. The first, yeah, the guy who wrote the first dietary goals is apparently was a Seventh Day Adventist. So he wanted to put a bit more of a spin and a twist on it. And then you, you look at it, 1977 became mm. the demonization of saturated fat. Yeah. Well, I think 2020 has become the demonization of animal proteins as well. Yeah. And yeah. In my mind, medical evangelism, this lifestyle medicine group, which was founded in 2003 as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on the Loma Linda University campus, has not only taken, so there's, I think, 10 medical universities around the world that are owned by the church. Mm. And one of them is very aligned in America, but there are 10 currently, mm. and a lot of them in third world countries. So, of course, they want to educate doctors in third world countries to um, promote less meat. It's it's a much easier target, can I say, than mm. in Australia, mm. potentially, unless we can be convinced that it's harming the planet. Mm. So they've got these medical education and then they've got lifestyle medicine that's currently getting into every continent in the world and mm. they're running exams for this American College of Lifestyle Medicine overarching under the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Mm. They're getting associations all around the world. And when you do these exams, you are sitting in an exam that's been written and co-written, sorry, by people who are devout Seventh-day Adventists. And it seems to be a, a group of people working for Coca-Cola's exercises medicine has moved in with them. And mm. so the exams are set on the plant-based Garden of Eden diet with a side of Coke. That's what <laughs> I'm sort of looking at. And while the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine is trying to minimise the impact of religion within that society, they are still advertising that you study lifestyle medicine at Avondale College, which is owned by mm. the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they're wow. advertising the Lifestyle Medicine Education Collaborative, which has been written by Seventh-day Adventists and the Coca-Cola Group or Exercises mm. Medicine. Yep. And they want to get it into medical education in Australia right now. Mm. And so I guess I've become so vocal because I, I looked into all of this for about two years and I just said to go, I just don't know if I can talk about this because yeah. the idea of religion is quite confronting to me and I know it's very confronting to a lot of people when I first present it. But Gary said to me, they are sanitarium specifically, which is the commercial arm of the church, mm. which pays no tax because they come mm. under their charity status, they are writing resources for doctors. They are shaping guidelines on the technical advisory experts for the health star ratings. So, of course, processed foods getting a much better rating than mm. pure mints. Um, mm. You know, when you look at what they're developing, all these things, and recently the loophole that was found that Sanitarium pushed for for plant-based um, milks has now mm. allowed plant-based meat to get through and be called mm. meat. And so I know that the, right now the government's trying to 
close this loophole that somehow mm. slipped through because Sanitarium lobbied for it early in the 2000s. But they're a very, very influential group and they've made us believe that they are the health and wellness of Australia. Mm. So Gary just said to me, we have to talk about this because it's yeah. impacting my patients, it's impacting me. I'm being reported to the medical board and being silenced from talking about this. So this has to come out. And so hence you heard about me and my research and, and I haven't, haven't stopped doing it because I think it's, it's vitally important. And it's not that I'm against people who choose to be Seventh-day Adventists mm. and follow those dietary guidelines if that's what they choose to do. But it's about transparency. And, mm. and as you've pointed out, mm. through all your incredible work, where are we getting our optimum nutrition? Where are these nutrients sitting? And they're not just in fruits, grains, nuts and seeds, unfortunately. Yeah. People who are on a vegan diet, if you look at the Adventist health studies, they actually classify a vegan diet as someone who eats meat, fish, milk, eggs, cheese, all those things, less than once a month. But their public health messaging doesn't say that. Mm. The public... The young people who are choosing a vegan diet who are reading that vegan is healthy yep. do not know that it actually potentially includes the tiniest amounts of all the essential nutrients we need mm. are still mm. included in that diet. So I, I've gotten loud and <laughs> I I, I'm it. not grumpy, but you know, I, I'm, I just think it's a really, really important discussion. And as it's you said... incredibly passionate. Yeah. It's amazing how the, the medical evangelism with a belief-based nutritional system optimised with the belief of, you know, dampening sexual desire and sexual function has, is now influencing massively not just the dietary guidelines but the medical education, as you said, through mm. lifestyle medicine. And and it's just an amazing alignment with between religious belief system and a plant-based ethical belief system yes. and big food and agriculture that is just enables a open door to drive a mac truck of of yeah. sugar you know industrial seed oils and and yes. refined grains into a food system that are inc the most nutrient poor thing you could eat and, mm. But the cheapest, most hyperpalatable foods we could choose yeah. as well. So it it, it works so beautifully beautifully for for all parties because from a religious point of view, nobody's eating meat anymore. Nobody's eating animal products. From a mm -hmm. belief plant based system, you know, we're not eating animal products, which is apparently going to save the planet. And then from a food, um, big food money-making engine it's just like wow bring it on so and they don't have to come out and say here's our original teachings that have influenced our thinking this is how you should eat it's just yeah. this really subtle greenwashing and if you tell the the 14 year old girl that she'll save the planet and save her health and it's optimal to not eat any animal product all you have to do is eat a plant-based diet which is not spinach and asparagus and mushrooms and and nuts it's just you know anything that's not plant-based so uh, yes, anything that yes. doesn't contain you know, animal, animal products, <laughs> which, which food bar. <laughs> ends up being Sugar the most cereal. nutrient poor hyper palatable high profit margin food you can create and it's just yeah. like you it's it's hard to unsee that and back away from that and you want to 
present the data and you're presenting the, the history i'm presenting the hey we need nutrients in food what, what do you need nutrients without excess calories where are you going to get that from you know let's look at the data to understand that well i read that ellen g white's granddaughter lived with her until she passed away so yeah. when ellen g white was in australia her son married an, a tasmanian girl would you believe <laughs> and they, wow. went back, they went back to america and <laughs> And so this granddaughter, or two granddaughters, I think they were, lived with Ellen G. White at her home well, in the last five years of her life, I believe. And they had their own cattle, because she talks about it, for milk. And, wow. and Ellen G. White taught butter was just a sin. You're not allowed to have butter from 1860, like butter, butter, butter. But she said that they had milk and cream on their toast. Well, surely you just need a few more churns of that cream and it's butter. this doesn't make sense and they had their own chickens so they ate their own eggs so while ellen g white was anti all of these things and taught all these messages she was still having from her own animals on her own property fresh milk cream and eggs and Mm. i think you know people also don't understand you know she said there a time would come when these things would be too dangerous to eat Mm. But she, her family stayed healthy because they were still eating them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I don't think the, the SDA diet is necessarily purely plant based, and I think the ethical and uh, you know potentially yeah. financial elements have leveraged that even more. But the SDA at the core isn't necessarily. It's basically a vegetarian diet with with some dairy and. Um, it is until you look closer at what the medical evangelists like the yeah. pure. The pure people who are taking it on as a commission mm. are definitely pushing total vegetarian, which is a mm. vegan diet. Mm. And th- that's the concern. These are the ones who are getting into dietary guidelines, like Joan Sabat, who became, he was on the 2020 US Dietary Guidelines Committee. He wrote The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 2018, mm. which was published in uh, Religions. And he said nutrition science pretty much began with the advent of the church, which you mentioned earlier. Mm. And people like him, people like the guys who are starting lifestyle medicine and really promoting that are total believers that we need to get rid of all of these things. And we do have the ability now. We have created enough food substitutes Mm. and soy. We've been able to manufacture soy to be able to get rid of milk, meat, eggs and butter. Mm. And as I say, but their vegan diet does not say they have to do it all the time. It just has to be less than once a month. Mm. But I do believe that these people who are promoting it at the top level, at the head of nutrition, research and everywhere else, they are promoting a pure vegan diet. Mm. Yeah, I saw something on social the other day about, you know, people are looking at injecting something so people become allergic to meat. And it's like, oh, wow, this is a crazy world we're living in. Um, Like a cigarette patch. Do you you have any thoughts on whether it's a good idea to optimise your diet to minimise sexual function and and sexual vice, as as they called it? I mean, everything we see is, you know, optimum fertility, attractiveness, um, vitality aligns with a a healthy body mass index, Ah. body composition and... Not to Ellen. with a certain amount of vitality and every time we had sexual relations even marital relations depleted our vitality so no she was 
very anti the whole concept of everything because she wanted to be vital for a long time. Um, so no, I, I don't. I think the whole idea. I, I read somewhere that um, cornflakes were just an anti-masturbation crusade. Mm. That's how they started out, and it's and it's honestly true. John Harvey Kellogg produced food that was bland that wouldn't irritate. He wanted to produce food that would flush through the bowel really quickly because they believed any pressure in the bowel would then put mm. pressure on the male prostate and, wow. and and sexually arouse him. So this was this whole thing about doing yogurt enemas all the time and just eating high-fibre food so you were just always empty and you had no opportunity to get any sensation in there. Um, so I'm not aware of any science to back up that, that I'm these days. No. But, anyway. but we still do hear that masturbation causes blindness. I'm sure yeah. I heard that when I was a kid. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, but just optimising a diet to minimise sexual yeah, function just seems yeah. so antithetical to it, it does. everything we know now about optimal vitality. It does, but, but what if what if your religion was that Jesus was coming soon, mm. which she truly believed he would come in her lifetime? John Harvey Kellogg's parents were such devout Adventists, they didn't send their children to school. I think they had 12 or 15 kids. They didn't send them to school because it was going to be a waste of money and time and effort because he was about to come back mm. and save them mm. all. So, you know, we're talking about a group of people who didn't see beyond. They just truly believed that Jesus was going to come back within their lifetime. Um, so to put these things in place to minimise it, it didn't matter about procreation because mm. it wasn't really going to be that yeah. important because the generations, as time went on, she said, well, now I've been told we can't sit idly by, so we need to invest in education and we need to work out because we haven't got enough people believing this. Mm. Jesus doesn't see the point in coming back when there's not enough people to save. You know, it's a, pretty much a waste yeah. of his time. We need to get so, 144,000 true believers and then Christ yeah. will return as one of the beliefs yeah. that's up and gone. And exactly. Anyway. Um, I, yeah, so I think, yeah, so this idea of um, minimising metabolic health i don't think was even considered back then you know how mm. it would actually impact and going forward into future generations i don't believe they thought that far ahead her messaging mm. was for then the present truth and they thought that would be the end yeah um so a bit of a hit list of people you've or, or organizations you've dug into is quite fascinating um the blue zones a lot of people talking about blue zones we should eat like the blue zones tell me about the blue zones and uh, okay so the at. The blue zones. I've been looking to. I've I've looked at a lot of Western A. Price's work and seen that his concept and certain Sally Fallon's understanding mm. and writings about his work as well. Um, all looked into blue zones were ancestral diets. Most of them were really um, isolated places. Mm. A lot of them were surrounded by water. Like Okinawa is just a million miles from anywhere, and totally mm. surrounded by. Water. You can't tell me those people ate plants. <laughs> they would have fished. And when the Japanese There's a lot of vaccine, fish and pork, I believe. A lot of fish and pork. And when mm. the Japanese did their studies on the longevity, not a single person was on an only plant-based diet, despite what Dan Butner and the Blue Zones would have us believe. I've looked at you know the Italian guys who actually were looking at longevity and everything else. Again, they said it might have been a plant-based diet, but it included animal proteins and fats. Mm. There wasn't a single one that they came across that didn't include those things. Dan Butner, if you look at his original work and some mm. of the interviews that he did, 
he talked about the fact that people were eating meat. But by the time he developed his Blue Zones plant slant diet, that was really based on Loma Linda, Loma Linda mm. which is one of the Blue Zones, which is a Seventh-day Adventist retirement place mm. and medical hub of the world, mm. they, he's pushed 95% plants as the recommended diet. In the meantime, the Blue Zones have been very involved with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. They're oh. also involved with the World, World Economic Forum, or, and Dan Button has spoken at that, and he's trying to align his Blue Zones with their vision mm. of build back better and put us all into a plant-based diet for the world. And unfortunately, they're also aligned with a lot of food industry and pharma and biotech and everyone else to create mm. our food. <laughs> our food. Mm. So, but the Blue Zones was bought by Adventist Health in 2020. Mm. So they're already in 50 different communities in the United States. So you've got the Adventist Health has got something like 47 hospitals in the US. They've got 220, mm. 227 hospitals worldwide, only one in Australia. The footprint here is very, very small. Mm. But in America, they, are, uh, they contribute so much to the American health system with their mm. clinics and hospitals and their all the work that they're doing. Now that they own the Blue Zones as well and they've gotten into 50 more communities and growing, I mean, they're taking that message that meat is bad and animal fats are bad and we need to get rid of them out of your diet for health. And mm. my concern is where's the transparency? It's not about health. This is about a belief that mm. they will bring Jesus back if they promote this dietary message mm. and it's it's been fascinating mm. so you're probably about to hear a lot more about the blue zone project and all the benefits of the blue zones and you'll live longer if you eat like the people in the blue zones who didn't eat meat no, if you eat like people at loma up. linda <laughs> it's yeah. not about all the other blue zones they've all been yeah. um hijacked it's yeah and like you said like most people in the sta church are very health conscious but at the same time from what i see uh, you know, not everybody thrives on processed foods for their entire life. Yeah, well, anyway, without, no, I, without, I, I, I'm not I don't on. see the vibrant health necessarily. Like my uncle went low carb after becoming type 2 diabetic and, and changed his health and, you know, decades of I lived on wheat bits till I was 18 or whatever as a main staple and every time I come home I eat a whole lot and I was, you know, very large and not particularly healthy so well I think it's important to understand um, that some people within the church they believe that gluttony is is a sin so a lot of people in the church who are committed to the message tend to try and stay lighter weight mm. And because they're keeping their weight down, maybe they can avoid some mm. of the complications of some of the things as long as they are eating mm. some of the essential nutrients. Or they have the privilege in Western society of being able to supplement, yeah. you know, have their vitamin B12 injections and things. It's not a complete diet. Yeah. But I've spoken to people in the US who are in less um, socioeconomically developed mm. areas, and they said every single person in their church is sick. Mm. Every single mm. person has type 2 diabetes and they buy the church's food. They buy the foods that are made by the church. Mm. They're eating processed food all the time. Mm. 
mm. because they're taught that they're supporting the church. Like this is a donation mm. to the church, tax deductible, deductible mm. donation, not tax deductible, sorry. It's just a pure donation to the church every time you buy their products because yeah. they don't pay any tax on them. Yeah. So they are encouraged to buy the products and they eat them thinking that they're health food. So you look at, um, what was his name, John Knight, John, mm. John Wright, John mm. Wright, and I'm not picking on him for his beliefs and he did amazing things, I think, for health and bringing humour into health and all sorts of things mm. over the 1970s, 80s, 90s, but he developed lung cancer and bowel cancer and he swears he was a vegetarian his entire mm. life. Wow. And after he got, and never smoked, and after he got lung cancer, he pretty much went on to a diet of just eating, I think he said he ate 21 bananas, wheat bix and soy milk, and then he got bowel cancer. So you can't avoid these things necessarily just because you're eating a vegan or vegetarian diet either. And this is a high-profile media celebrity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yeah, wow. um, so I, I don't believe a vegan diet gives health. It depends what you're eating, I guess. And yeah. Gary... I mean, that's why we went down this path. Gary's cancer feeds on glucose sugar. Mm. So mm. for him, he needs to be a very low-carb eater mm. because any carbohydrate is spiking or has the potential to put his mm. cancer back to becoming mm. active. So yeah. it's individualising it, which is what you're doing such an incredible yeah. job. You know, that's yeah. what your work is just really sitting at the heart of <laughs> individualising and optimising nutrition for people with specific needs. Yeah. I mean, for yeah. everybody, but specific yeah. needs as well. So it's acknowledging that some people need to be very low carb or almost yeah. no carb or no carb. Other people, they, they're perfectly well eating some carbohydrates, yeah. but the processed but, crap that's got no nutrient in it, we exactly. should just be all ditching. <laughs> exactly. And, and like, yeah, if you just reframe science to say you need to get the nutrients without excess calories, it, it would mm. turn everything on its head. I'm just... You know, doing but it would bit. bankrupt um, but, the food industry, and I don't want to hear that. Yeah, they, they probably want to shut you down for that. Um, and luckily you. I'm an engineer, and they haven't come at me for, uh, you uh, know, Engineers Association doesn't care what I say. Um, but Diabetes Association, any thoughts on uh, associations? Uh, my concern there? is that we've been trying to speak to the Diabetes Association. I know James Mickey's having a lot more success than we ever did. But when Gary started talking about sugar in 2012, it was a taboo subject. Mm. And when you understand in 2014, 2015, 16, the Dietitians Association of Australia had a corporate partnership with mm. the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturing Forum, Cereal for Brekkie. That was what they mm. traded as. And that includes Sanitarium, Kellogg's, Nestle mm. and um, Freedom Foods. And their partnership with the DAA was for the DAA to use their members so the members may have been completely unaware, but they were to use their members to influence, protect and actively defend cereal grains and sugars messaging. This has come from the cereal industry to determine and dictate these measures. So dietitians had no idea. So like when you said you and Moni were in hospital and when Gary was having his tumour at the beginning. So when he started talking about sugar, it was taboo, yeah. even though it's been talked about previously and previously and been dampened down and dampened down. So you know, it, this is we have to be able to talk about what's best for individuals. Yeah. It's just yeah. so important. And, and dietitians in Australia who don't toe the party line are shut down very, very quickly and they, know, they're they not lose able their job. To get re, 
reimbursement. Yeah, because right, the Dietitians um, so hard... Association of Australia, yeah, they the they um the dietitians. Sorry, we're going Diabetes Australia, but Diabetes Australia are also funded by the pharmaceutical industry in such a huge way. Their mm. board members have got ties, and it, it makes it very complicated. Mm. To, they, they want to frame diabetes as a disease mm. because that means type 2 diabetes as a disease because then they can sell medication. Mm. They can prescribe things. If it's mm. not a disease anymore, if it's something mm. that's just a lifestyle and can be reversed, oh, dear, that's not mm. good because they don't need to exist anymore. And same with heart, heart foundation. Yeah. What if cardiovascular disease was going at a rate of knots? And you look at the obesity. Um, world obesity and the Obesity Australia, the Obesity College, all of these things, obesity has gotten worse and worse since they were inve invented. Mm. And, again, they want to classify obesity as a disease because that allows them to have prescribed um medication mm. and that just funds pharma mm. Mm. it's not about health yeah and if we got everybody off the insulin and diabetes medications so many people potentially stand to lose financially yeah. from that if we could just give them the food they need to dial that in and it's definitely very possible and we you know you and i see it all the time but yes. <laughs> uh, it's just crazy um so eat lancet eat lancet um eat lancet that's a, deep rabbit that, hole. that's a very very deep rabbit hole and i and i did a you and i and i certainly referenced your work did a big deep dive a couple of years ago into the eat lancet and sort of showcasing that these so-called 27 scientists there was only one nutritionist and that was walter willett Mm. who is sitting in Fred Stair's chair at Harvard University, mm. which was bankrolled by the food industry. He keeps claiming he has no ties, but Nina has found some associations. Mm. But his department is bankrolled by the food mm. industry. And he was a board of direct he was on the board of directors of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine from its mm. founding at wow. Loma Linda University. So he is aligned with that messaging and he has continued to be aligned with that messaging going all the way through appeasing Adventists, appeasing food industry, whatever else. Mm. This Eat Lancet diet suggests that we pretty much malnourish ourselves and eat the tiniest amount of lean meat. As you worked out, it mm. shows all these vegetables and fruits and everything else, but really it's cereal and grain-based. It's, it's terrible that this group can seem so authoritative and we need mm. to be showcasing your work in particular. This isn't nutrients. This isn't optimising nutrition in any way, shape or form. This is providing information for the food industry. Oh, thank you for bringing it up. Look at that. Yeah. I, I, I took their recommendations and looked at what it looked like on a percentage of calories and it's mainly rice, wheat and corn with yeah. industrial seed oils and then the actual... It made me cry. <laughs> I can't. I can't find the vegetable intake. There it is. Three percent oh, of calories. Oh, there it is. Yes. That, but the plate. Show the plate now. The plate looks that, much prettier that, than that. You ruined that, it. That, that's what the modern <laughs> plant-based diet looks like. And and then they 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 talk about macronutrient intake and they've confused food groups with macronutrients. But anyway, and then you've got the who's interested in funding this? It's crazy. The 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 financial backing. The, the financial backing and. And it was with a, the the elite have no right to be dictating how the masses will eat 
when it doesn't yeah. affect them. And I think that's a really important thing as well. Gunhild Stordalen, who is mm. created that um, EAT part of the EAT Lancet, you know, she and her husband, uh, billionaires or ex-husband now, but they were travelling mm. the world in jet private jet planes and doing all sorts of things. She had a pinky promise with um, Sandro De Mayo, who's now the head of Big Health, to mm. try a vegan diet for a few weeks and just see what it was like. So she wasn't even eating a pure vegan diet when she was helping dictate that this is how the message should mm. go forward. And it's it's so wrong. And these are the pictures of the food that they recommend, which looks beautiful, but, you know, the actual nutrient density of what... <laughs> ends up being a plant-based diet to save the world is just horrific and like you say yeah. the people in developing countries um they they really need the animal-based foods to get their b12 Absolutely. iron and protein and uh, did, did you go to vanuatu with gary i didn't go to vanuatu i went to indonesia um yeah. but i didn't get to vanuatu gary went to vanuatu three three years to do medical aid foreign aid work there and he just said Coca-Cola had taken over. Like they didn't have yeah. type 2 diabetes yeah. before Coca-Cola and Western food, processed food moved in there. Yeah, um, I, we went over there about nine years ago and then five years okay. ago and just the change over five years from the mm -hmm. Chinese moving in and building all the roads and schools and, and bankrolling the government, it's like they're taking over the country by force and then dumping all the processed food in there and they love the Oreos and they love the vegetable oil and they just they of course. blow up. And, they, and they're told they can't, they're told it's illegal to fish, you know, in certain areas now. And these restrictions on people being able to provide their own essential nutrients and bombarding them instead with hyper-palatable, addictive foods that, you oh, I can just buy that's cheap, feed mm. our family, you go, this is mm. really concerning. You know, mm. people are being restricted from getting their own food. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and they're just selling off all their beautiful food that produce. They produce the best food in the world. It tastes incredible. And they, yeah. that goes to the resorts and then they go to the market and sell their food and buy the convenience food next door. And it's mm. diabolical what's happening to their health and the Aboriginal health. And it, yeah, it's amazing. Yes. Um, so... Do you think change is going to come from the top down? No, <laughs> absolutely not. We need to chop the head off. As far as I'm concerned, uh, no, change will definitely come from the bottom. But hopefully so, if we can get medical, if we can get the medical health, if we can get health professionals on board, then they will educate their patients and it will go much further. If our medical education is plant-based dominant, if they get, their hands, everybody's hands, the food industry, pharmaceutical industry, Adventist church, ethical, Doctors for Nutrition. You know, Doctors for Nutrition are an animal rights activist sort of group. This is mm. the underlying, but you wouldn't know that. Mm. Doctors for Nutrition sounds amazing. Yeah. So when you when you look deeper into all these things, if we end up with a medical education that is demonising animal proteins and fats, we're in big trouble. Mm. Yeah, it's really hard to reverse. Uh, so who do you think could stand to lose if we focused on getting nutrients from that we need from food without excess energy? Food, pharma, all the associations, <laughs> they rely on their... They rely on their the, the issue is a lot of people have gone into Diabetes Australia, Heart Foundation, all of these places, 
to be patient advocates or to think they're going to make it better. Mm. But if they don't know the truth, if they don't understand that, you know, animal proteins and fats aren't the worst thing mm. in the world and that we can't save the world by all eating processed soy, mm. if these people don't understand that messaging, they're just promulgating the mm. education, the messaging that they've been taught, then, but also how do you as a medical professional tell someone that maybe you did the wrong thing or maybe mm. you had the wrong information and you've been creating harm for the last mm. 20, 30 years? It's also very confronting. Mm. Some people might prefer to just carry on with their profession and finish. Mm. Others like David Unwin and Gary go, you know what? I'm really sorry. <laughs> that was wrong. Let me make it up to you. Let, let's do something. You know, yeah. Brian Yoga Nathan, he's at the beginning of his work and he's all, an amazing all these man. others. So they can take it in right now and they don't have to worry. But there's a lot of people, a lot of GPs who've been band-aiding sick care based on guidelines shaped by vested interests and ideology that mm. have no idea. And how do they respond? You know, we've got the five mm. stages of grief. It's mm. a very powerful thing to mm. say you're sorry to someone. So mm. ground up, people's stories, yeah. your work. Let's so so what can people do on a, on a, at a grassroots level to, to change nutritional dogma and, and move on in, in their own family and to share it, to get the word out? In Tassie, we're really, really lucky. I'm surrounded by a pasture just looking out there. Um, <laughs> so... I am able to access fresh local seasonal food and support local farmers here. I realise it's not as easy for everybody to mm. be able to do that, but I think eating minimally processed food, considering mm. what is the best for our, mm. optimising our nutrition, for our metabolic mm. health, for our hormone production, for all of those essential functions and for having health in our life, mm. um, we need to just consider what we're eating and try and put your blinkers on when you just see the constant marketing of um, junk food coming at you. James yeah. Mickey's managed to get um, all the junk food out of the Australia Post around Australia. Wow. I think that's fantastic. Awesome. You walk in there and there's no junk food in there anymore. So, you know, people can start to make changes. And if you don't buy the junk food in Australia Post, then they're going to stop <laughs> selling it. But that's really fantastic that he did that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's just about making your choices and just trying to change things and, and mm. create health for your family. Yeah, and if you've got the means, invest in the, the fresh local produce that tastes amazing, that's grown in an environment Absolutely. that will regenerate the environment, it will create a, a diverse, healthy, robust ecosystem, which Gary talks about a whole lot, that will hold the yes. soil there, that will build back nutrients for future mm -hmm. generations, um, it's it's a really exciting mission. And if you don't have beautiful pasture in Tasmania with the best food, then then still <laughs> source the best tasting whole yes. foods that you can, and uh, nourish your body, nourish your family, and be the change. I suppose you've got to start with be the change. Yeah, yourself, and that's what you guys are doing. So, what are you excited about for the future? You've got so much passion. I reckon the next oh, forty I'm years hold a lot of excitement. <laughs> for you. I'm excited because Gary and I've just we're doing this together, which is also mm. really lovely. And so we're on a mission. We bounce ideas off each other. He's definitely the science, and I'm definitely the the research. Mm. But we've been 
talking about this for seven years together. So mm. a lot of his ideas sort of start to permeate and mine go into his brain as well. And I just think our mission is to just keep advocating, advocating for our farmers. Gary went and spoke at the um, beef and cattle industry mm. meeting in Rockhampton. And he was really excited to do that because he said it's taking it a little bit outside mm. the low carb sphere. And I'm certainly creating more and more contacts with local farmers, mm. local producers, and hopefully even getting some um, submissions to government about, yeah. you know, where can we take this messaging? There's no point trying to do it with APRA medical guidelines mm. and diabetes guidelines. They're, they're struggling because of their funding. And, yeah. and compromised, I believe, because of funding. The uh, uh, CEO of the American Diabetes Association, Tracy, um, she has type two diabetes. First person yeah. as a CEO with type two diabetes, and she start. She read Richard Bernstein's Bernstein's mm. book, and she started going low carb. She came off her medications. She was off her insulin. She was, thought she would get rid of all medications by 2020. Said she just loved being the poster girl, showing you could take back control. And yeah. couldn't believe that she didn't know about it earlier. Well, yeah, then that she was told to quieten down. Wow. And and again, that advocacy certainly it's starting to get into the guidelines quietly, and she'd be pushing for it as hard as she could. But who funds it? Yeah. The pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough thing. So I think ground up, and I'm yeah. excited to keep pushing from the ground. And thanks so much for having me on. And hearing a bit of my research because the more people we can um, share this messaging with, mm. more people will start to question and, mm. and think about their health. Yeah, and, maybe and not take it supporting. into their own hands and be the change and look after themselves yeah. and their family and that'll spread and maybe there'll be a little niche of people who are able to optimise <laughs> their nutrition and look completely different to the dystopian future that we may be facing if this all continues so that's what i'm excited yes, about that the people who want to make a change we can say hey here are the foods that contain the nutrients you need absolutely chase them it's dietary agnostic um it's you don't need a belief system you just need foods that contain the nutrients you need so. i loved your comment you were saying something about um religion and ethical beliefs and mm. vested interests derail uh, you know, natural, you know, they're, they're derailing our understanding of what's healthy mm. and what's not mm. and, and what we choose to eat. Gary said, take emotions out. Mm. And, and, yeah, both of you, just, it's a yeah. really powerful messaging. I think that's the most important takeaway from this talk. Yeah. Take those subjective messaging influences out and just think about your health. Mm. Focus yeah. on the nutrients. Yeah. Be selfish in a way, but that being selfish will regenerate the planet by creating a diversity Absolutely. ecosystem that will not just, you know, create the products of agriculture with the minimum energy input, will create a, a diversity ecosystem that will be here in 50, 100 years that will want to live in so that's what i'm excited about as well so and healthy people to live in it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah anyway yeah. um 
Wally is such a dystopian. Have you seen Wally? Fascinating movie. Yes, Gary's made us watch it many times. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, a scary future that we may be heading for. So hopefully we can get off that train for those people yeah. who want to. So thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. You're such a wonderful Thanks, human being and hopefully yeah. we can um, catch up in person again soon. And uh, thank Sounds you. great. Thank you for all you right. do. Thank Thanks, you. Cheers. Bye. Bye.